also, the city council today uh, affirmed the decision they're going to be paying $27 million to settle a civil lawsuit for the family of George Floyd. The city council voted unanimously to approve the largest police settlement in the city's history. $500,000 of the $27 million will go directly to the neighborhood that includes the 28th and Chicago intersection where Floyd was killed last year. Uh, here's family attorney Dan Crump. Violent crime in, in our city. It's not just historic because of the $27 million paid out, but for the impact on social justice, policy reforms, and police reforms. Because the financial compensation most directly impact George Floyd and his family, the future of their family. But it is the policy reforms that affects all of us. It's going to be a long journey. A long journey to justice. This is but one step on the journey to justice. George Floyd had more witnesses to his torture and death than any other person, black or white, in American history. Over 50 million people have clicked to watch that video. And once you see that video, you can never unsee that video. We know, America, that we're more humane than this. In this historic agreement, the largest pre-trial settlement in a police civil rights wrongful death case in U.S. history makes a statement that George Floyd deserved better than what we witnessed on May 25, 2020. That George Floyd life bring George Floyd's life back, uh, but look, uh, it's forcing these cities to understand uh, you're going to have to pay it big bucks when your cops do wrong. Again, what these cities should be doing is changing their procedures, saying to all of these different cops, hey, you keep costing us money, we're going to take it out of your pension, out of your pocket. Well, when you took the words right out of my mouth, that was the first thing that I was going to say is, first off, there's no amount of money that can ever bring back a life lost, right? We don't know um, the type of hardship and pain that they're living with and they're suffering with. But like you said, um, although I'm happy that the family is getting such a large lump sum, um, what is uh, what is unfortunate is that it is coming out of the city's money. It's coming out of the taxpayers' money. I'm tired, and I know we are all tired of paying for the police misconduct, for the brutality, and for the killing of black and brown people on the street. We are paying for that. So I couldn't agree with you more in terms of we need to completely change the structure in which um, how these type of lawsuits are being paid out. And as the attorney said, um, we need justice in terms of not just reform, but a radical revision, um, revisioning of what policing is. Because we know that it's rare to see officers um, indicted for killing civilians, and convictions are even rarer. Even with the trial that's coming up, we're already seeing, in my opinion, some um, some problematic jury selection, just down to the, the type of questions that they're asking under police con uh, contacts. Essentially, if you have um, any prior um, uh, connection with Black Lives Matter or protesting police brutality, um, or if you view uh, Blue Lives Matter unfavorable, you cannot um, be a part of the jury. So I'm, I'm still concerned. 
Um, look, this is uh, something, Kieran, that um, we keep seeing over and over and over again. Uh, it's a, it's a le- demanding of accountability, but again, it, 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 it ratchets up the pressure on these various cities. Uh, and again, when they start negotiating the contracts, that's where you got to deal with this stuff. So it, it starts with getting rid of things like qualified immunity, and, and you really do have to go uh, at that at the state level. And you also have to remove some of the protections that are written in the police contracts uh, around uh, the killing of civilians. Uh, I've seen this happen in so many different cities. This is a, a rather large settlement. We've seen a, a lot of policy changes uh, around the activity in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, Attorney Crump was, was successful in this regard in getting policy changes as well as getting a settlement for the family. But it doesn't bring back um, George Floyd and it doesn't you know, undo all the damage that was done to the city uh, during the, the weeks of rioting. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't heal the community at all, but we really do need to start to focus on how we create those policy changes in order to hold police departments more accountable for their wrongdoing. Uh, Michael, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where, look, money can't bring anybody back. It can't satisfy, it can't satisfy any of that. Uh, uh, but what you're seeing also with these um, deals, we saw it in Breonna Taylor's case, um, where they also are forcing the changes as best they can with these cities as a part of the deal. Right, with with uh, policies and laws um, w- within the city, um, uh, policies dealing with uh, law enforcement, et cetera. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of tricky with this. One, um, the $27 million, okay, and you're a few weeks away from, from the actual trial starting. We know the uh, selection of the jury is taking place right now. Uh, so, you know, I'm happy for the family there. But then you wonder, okay, now, are they trying to telegraph something to us? Are they doing this settlement before the trial actually starts? Because, now I have I have all faith uh, in in, in, in um, the uh, state prosecutor. Okay, but what I'm saying is, um, you know, it's it's tricky. It's like really tricky when you think about this. Okay, now the white woman's family got twenty million dollars. The cop was black, uh, newer. Now they come with this twenty-seven million dollar settlement, rightfully so, but. Are they trying to maybe do this because they want to throw the or no sway? No, no, that's not it. No, no, other no, cases. No, no. no, I'm not. I'm not saying it is, Roland. No, no, I'm saying is other other. Oh. Here's the deal. There have been numerous other cases where the settlement took place before the trial. Here's the second right. thing. Here's the second thing that a lot of people out there don't understand when it comes to the law. So, for instance, when in Texas, when they had the Amber Amber uh, Geiger trial. They were all the community was yelling, uh, yelling, uh, first degree murder, first degree murder, fire the cop, all those different things. The lawyers kept saying, y'all chill the hell out, because what they did not realize is once an officer has been fired, you lose a certain layer of protection that impacts the settlement with the city. So a lot of folks don't know the legal piece. So what often happens in these cases is that they want to do the settlement before it goes
goes to trial because, frankly, you're at your best for the sake of the family with the city. You're at your you're at your highest negotiating point before the trial starts. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, the gonna... legal strategy that right. folk don't understand. So they're like, well, "Why is this happening now?" That's one of the reasons why they don't want it to come after the trial. If he's found not guilty, now all of a sudden the city's like, "Well, there you go." Right. That's why you, you do it before. Lose you, you 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 lose leverage. Yeah, I, I I understand that as well. I've covered a number of these cases also. I, I just hope everything. You know, one one thing I I, I, I look at. I'm, I'm happy for the settlement. But, and I know you know this as well, Roland, what I really focus in on is the trial, conviction, and sentencing. That's what I really focus in on. I'm happy for the settlement, not trying to take anything away from the family or anything like that. But that's what I really focus in on, because I've seen some of these trials go the wrong way. So um, that, that's why I'm, I'm happy for the family, but, you know, um, I'm leery also. I, I want to see how this progresses. Well, again, uh, bomb, the bottom line is this here. The settlement piece is a mm -hmm. completely separate deal than whatever is happening in the trial. Uh, but, uh, but, but But certainly uh, uh, we're glad to see that uh, right. in this case that, they, one, they were not lowballed, they were not disrespected. Uh, and, right. again, we want to see justice there. All right, folks, got to go to right. a break. We come back. Black basketball team decides to take a knee during the Oklahoma basketball championship. White announcers called them the N-word. Hmm. We'll discuss that next to Roland Martin Street. Republicans know their ideas aren't popular. That's why they lost the popular vote in all but one election. It's gross, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks. Organizers in Louisville, Kentucky, are planning a uh, big rally tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of the murder of Breonna Taylor. Taylor's family would join Until Freedom, a national social justice organization that planned several demonstrations for Taylor in Louisville last year for a rally at Jefferson Square Park at 1 p.m., followed by a food giveaway at 4.30 p.m. Ahead of the rally and other protest events, Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher and other city officials released a list of streets that will be closed to vehicle traffic. Police shot and killed Taylor, of course, uh, a year ago. He was an emergency, tech, emergency room tech and former EMT took place during an undercover raid on her apartment near Pleasure Ridge Park as part of a larger narcotics investigation. No drugs or money were found in Taylor's apartment, and none of the officers who fired their weapons into the residence were charged in connection with her death. Now, one of them was charged, but it was, it was really a very small charge. Her uh, boyfriend, uh, who they arrested, uh, had all charges dropped against him. Um, this is, of course, this was, of course, a shocking uh, story uh, that... Uh, that you, you couple with Amar Arbery, uh, this story, uh, then of course George Floyd. Uh, it was one after another uh, here in 2020, and it really put the emphasis on no knock warrants. It put the emphasis on cops not having body cameras turned on, so we don't know exactly what happened there as well. It opened up a whole um, a Pandora's box of things uh, that uh, were critically important that spoke to, again, actions by police in cases like this where the guy they were looking for was already in jail. They simply didn't have they'd want. I just, I find it hard to believe that this continues to happen over and over and over again. I think a lot about my friend Leon Ford, who I went to high school with, 
who was mistaken uh, for being another man in the city of Pittsburgh, where they subsequently tried to pull him out of his car and then shot him five times, and he miraculously survived. We've seen this far too often around the country in way too many different cities, and, it, and as it keeps happening over and over and over again, the calls for body cameras, uh, the calls for the end to qualified immunity, and the call, calls for police accountability grow louder, and uh, I, I'm looking at local elected officials to step up to the plate and really deliver on, you know, holding police departments accountable for killing black people. Brittany. Yeah, you know, um, it's unfortunate that we're here and we continue to be here time and time and time again. And, you know, while obviously this is the current system that we exist under, I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't continue to push for reform. We should, but I think it's important. I mean, every generation, my generation, my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, we have so many stories of this um, ongoing call for justice and the end to the killing of black people. And at what point do we say that this system really isn't meant for us um, and that reform really isn't going to be enough because we've been fighting this uphill battle for a very long time. Um, and, you know, I hope we take this weekend to um, say her name and to say the name of so many other black women that we have lost um, at the hands of police violence. And I also um, want to echo the words of the activists on the ground who will be um, um, you know, really highlighting what has happened to her. And, and they've said that this is not obviously a weekend for celebration, even after the charges have been dropped against her boyfriend. Um, but it, it, it's really about uh, about continuing to fight for justice and grant love for that long haul um, for us to just not be silenced, to not acquiesce, um, and to get the type of justice that we deserve. Michael. Yeah, you know, um, Roland, we, we are going to be a, an ensemble short took an interview with uh, Tamika Palmer, uh, Breonna Taylor's mother, and um, it's, you know, it's it's problematic on a number of different levels. Um, it, it, it's problematic when you look at the charges against one officer, but no charges were actually killing Breonna Taylor from Attorney General Cameron. Um, and then at the same time, it, it reminds me of uh, an interview that Representative Cori Bush did from Missouri. And she said when she first went into the U.S. House of Representatives, she was wearing a face mask that had Breonna Taylor's name on it. And members of, of the Republican Party were coming up to her calling her Breonna because they thought that was her name. They didn't know who Breonna Taylor was. So at the same time, you have us outraged and galvanized in support and trying to mourn and things like this. You know, some of the very same people who tried to overturn the last election and nullify our votes, at the same time try to nullify our voices and dehumanize us and devalue us as well. So, um, you know, Beverly, yeah, we have a lot of work to do, and this is why tying into the previous segment dealing with what uh, Latasha and Cliff are doing with Black Voters Matter, this is why this is, is so important. Understanding and leveraging our economics to enforce our politics. All of this is tied together. Dealing with a system of white supremacy and racism. All of this is tied together. Um, absolutely. All right, folks. Uh, today, uh, in the White House, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, uh, she swore in uh, Cecilia Rouse uh, as the first African American to chair the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, of course, uh, this is this is uh, the video here uh, of that swearing in.
you're there for us let me know when we have been ready as Biden's top economic advisor routes his help the administration reverse course from the current economic decline created by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, now let's play it. Okay, ready? Um, left hand on Bible, right hand up. Then repeat after me, please. I, Cecilia Brown, I, Cecilia Rout, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend, that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, against all enemies, foreign and domestic, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith, that I will bear true faith and allegiance, and allegiance to the same, to the same, that I take this obligation freely, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation, without any mental reservation, for purpose of evasion, for purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duty, discharge the duty upon which I am about to enter, upon the on which I am about to enter, so help me God, so help me God. Congratulations, Madam Chair. Targeting black farmers. 
You got Lindsey Graham, who's out coming out in opposition to that, calling it reparations for African Americans. You got some Republicans now trying to take credit for the bill, but not a single Republican in the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate voted for this bill and, <laughs> and, and, and is going to help many of the poor constituents that keep voting for these people. So they realize that they're exposed and to add salt into their wounds, and, and Joe Biden should, but you kick them, you should kick them behind. When, when they go low, stop them in their, in their head. That's what you do. Now they're going on a victory tour. And they're going to go to different states and break this down and explain to people in various states what's in the bill, how it's going to help them. And they're going to they're going to highlight the fact that not a single Republican voted for this bill. Okay, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, they realize that there's hell to come and the infrastructure bill. It's a good chance that infrastructure bill will pass also because they're going to do it during budget reconciliation. That infrastructure bill is going to help a lot of people in rural America that keep voting for these dumbass uh, Republicans as well. Okay, so they realize it's like, uh oh, we're in trouble. Okay, so they're trying to cling on while they while they talk about Dr. Seuss. They're trying to cling on whatever they can to try to give credit for the trade in chief. And many of these Republicans voted to overturn the results of the previous election. They got caught with their pants down. Sure, and I'm laughing because uh, Fox News actually had a Chiron thing. Uh, Biden signs the bill with no Republicans present. Well, they punk ass didn't vote for it. Exactly. Like I'm trying to figure out why. I'm trying to figure out why in the hell, why in the hell mm-hmm. would he invite Republicans to a Rose Garden uh, event when none of them voted for it? <laughs> My biggest issue with Republicans is you even had uh, Republican mayors and county executives of large municipalities, even like Fort Worth, I believe, that were calling for this relief in order to keep the lights on, in order to keep cops and firefighters and EMS on the street and you have their Republican counterparts in the in the Congress voting no on this particular bill that would have helped municipalities keep public safety workers and essential workers on the front lines. I, I just don't understand how they could even expect an invite after doing something like that. Hey, it's uh, absolutely stupid and crazy. Uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. Alright folks, a new bill in Oklahoma would allow drivers who unintentionally uh, I, I love this here, who unintentionally run over protesters to go unpunished. It grants immunity to any driver that unintentionally injures or kills a protester as long as there is a reasonable belief the driver was fleeing to protect themselves from harm. The bill also includes measures that would charge protesters misdemeanors punishable up to a year in jail and 5,000 hours in fines if they unlawfully obstruct traffic. It will be sent to the Republican Majority State Senate next week to be voted upon. Uh, we know what this bill here is. Uh, it's all about going after Black Lives Matter here. So uh, the thing that gets me is that there's no duty to retreat uh, in this bill. There, it, it puts no onus on a driver that can clearly see a large crowd in the way. Instead, it just gives them the ability to drive into a crowd, and if somebody happens to get in their way or hit their hood or make them feel threatened in any way, they can just run them over with impunity. Uh, this is absolutely disgusting, and uh, it's, it's dangerous for the state to even be sponsoring or considering legislation like this. Uh, what this is about, uh, Brittany, again, uh, Florida, uh, they're trying to consider something as well. Uh, and so, they, look, you got these idiots in Kentucky who the Senate passed uh, a bill saying you, you can't disrespect or yell at a cop. We, we know what this is about. We're seeing that state after state after state, there's various laws that are trying to quell any type of protest that is currently happening or that is going to happen um, as we get into the warmer weather. Um, it's 
quite frankly, it's disgusting. I, the, specifically with what is going on in Oklahoma, um, I, I, I even think about rolling like how much responsibility I have as a driver if I accidentally rear end somebody, right? Um, how is it possible that you can get away with quote unquote claiming I unintentionally hit somebody or I feared for my life, um, and that is why I'm allowed to essentially kill somebody um, and get away with it? We know that's certainly going to only work for a certain group of people. Um, so it's absolutely petrifying, and of course, you know, direct attack on us. Uh, you're going to see more of this, and this is what happens when you have Republicans who control state houses and governor's mansions, Michael. You know, Roland, we've seen this for the past few years. If you go back to April 2017, there were 18 uh, state legislatures that had controlled by Republicans that were proposing uh, bills to make it harder to protest and trying to criminalize protests, create harsher penalties for protesters who are arrested, uh, different things like this. And then at the same time, we see them, uh, 43 states, 253 bills, trying to make it harder to vote. So they're trying to make it harder for you to elect people and put them in office who are going to pass laws to benefit you and trying to make it harder and criminalize you when you protest against people who pass laws that are detrimental to you. Now, it's also important for us to understand that this is the, uh, this year is the 100th anniversary of the attack on Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, June 1st, uh, 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 1921, okay? So you have all this taking place at the same time, and they want to legalize, they want to actually make it legal for you to kill African Americans with your vehicle. This is what they're trying to do. So once again, this is an example of how elections have consequences. And this is why we have exactly what Latasha and, and, and Cliff are doing. This is why we have to do this all across the country. These people are crazy. You know, well, these are people, as, as my friend Dr. Red Carr calls it, the white nationalist party. These are people part of the white nationalist party. People that have lost their ever-loving minds. Um, I'm going to do one better. And wait till I explain it next uh, when we have our crazy black people segment. Uh, announcers, live, they were live streaming a basketball game. High school champion, high school playoff game. Black basketball team is out taking knee to the national anthem. The N-word all of a sudden comes spewing out. Wait <laughs> until I read for y'all what this white boy said. What happened? Y'all are not going to believe what I'm going to read. That's next on Roll With My Notebook. People in public service work hard every day in our communities, and we deserve respect for the work we do. That means a support no matter who you think you are. live stream. All right? Happened in the playoffs there in Oklahoma. Two teams. One of them decides to take a knee. This announcer was not too particularly happy. This is what was caught on a hot mic. Back here live after the national anthem, ladies and gentlemen.
they're going to kneel like that. I hope they lose. Video went viral. Folks picked up on it. This is what the Oklahoma released. This is their statement. Pull it up, please. Um, we were sickened by the comments. This is the NFHS network. It's actually, they were live streaming. We were sickened by the comments made last night at the start of the NFHS Network's broadcast of the OSSAA girls basketball game between Norman High School and Midwest City High School. The thoughts expressed in no way represent the NFHS Network, and we are outraged that they found their way into our production. The NFHS Network firmly condemns racism, hate, and discrimination, and there is no room for this in high school sports or anywhere. We sincerely apologize to the students their families, and the entire community for having such ignorant comments expressed during the broadcast. We are aggressively investigating the incident and will ensure that any individuals responsible will have no relationship with the NFHS network moving forward. Well, that announcer released his own statement. Oh, my God, this is a doozy. Y'all pull it up. <laughs> Y'all look at this here. I... Matt Rowan, on Thursday, March 11, 2021, most regrettably made some statements that cannot be taken back. During the Norman High School girls basketball game against Midwest City, I made inappropriate and racist comments, believing that the microphone was off. However, let me state immediately... That is no excuse. Such comments should have never been uttered. Oh, my Lord, y'all, it gets better. I am a family man. <laughs> I am married, have two children, and at one time was a youth pastor. I continue to be a member of a Baptist church. I have not only embarrassed and disappointed myself, I have embarrassed and disappointed my family and my friends. Oh, y'all, it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> I will state that I suffered type 1 diabetes. <laughs> and during the game, <laughs> my sugar was spiking. <laughs> Excusing my remarks, it is not unusual when my sugar spikes that I become disoriented and often say things, y'all. Y'all think I'm lying. Y'all, this is exactly what he wrote. Often say things that are not appropriate as well as hurtful. I do not believe that I would have made such horrible statements absent my sugar spikes. <laughs> Let me, I'm going to come back and read this, but my uh, both of my grandmothers had diabetes. <laughs> My, my dad has diabetes. My brother has diabetes. I think my mom has diabetes. I've never seen my dad or my grandmother 
or my brother or my mama. Go, ooh, my sugar's spiking. Nigga, 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 nigga. It's, 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 it's never. It's, ne- it's, it's never. It's never. It's never happened. Never happened. Go, go back to the States, and I, I need to give you that. During the time, during this time, I was with a colleague and friend, Scott Sapulja. Sapulja, whatever. Scott Sapulja is not the one that made these comments. It was me and me alone. It is not my desire to shirk my responsibility in this matter. And I certainly do not want Scott uh, Sapulja to share in the blame of this most unfortunate incident. While the comments I made would certainly seem to indicate that I am racist. Y'all, y'all, he literally wrote. (laughs) While the comments I made would certainly seem to indicate that I am racist. I am not. I have never <laughs> considered myself to be racist <laughs> and in short, cannot explain why I made these comments. <laughs> Is he a member of hashtag Team Sugar on Grits? <laughs> Go back to the statement, please. I offer my most sincere apologies for the inappropriate comments made and hope that I can obtain forgiveness. I specifically apologize to the Norman High School girls basketball team, their families, their coaches, and their entire school system. Additionally, I offer my apologies to OSSAA and NFHS Network. Further apologize to all involved in the situation and simply to the entire sports community. There are no other words to explain what occurred. This is something for which I must take responsibility, (laughs) and I wholeheartedly accept responsibility for my words and actions. It is my sincere desire that I can obtain forgiveness for my actions and words. I'm just 
just, you know, uh, I hope I hope Norma kicks their ass. I, I don't know what they're doing. Fucking Nick. He sounded lucid. He sounded, I'm not quite understanding what was going on. All right, what was the deal?
uh, Cash App, Dollar Sign, REM Unfiltered, PayPal.me forward slash R Martin Unfiltered, Venmo.com forward slash REM Unfiltered, of course, Zell, Roland at RolandSMartin.com. When we come back, uh, we'll talk with Kim Gardner. She's the uh, attorney, the embattled attorney, DA there in St. Louis. Y'all, wait until you hear what she has to say about police reunions, how they basically told her, you will never charge a cop for wrongdoing. And how Republicans have been fighting her, fighting her, and keeping her from doing her job. And how other black prosecutors, black female prosecutors, have stood with her in her most trying time. You do not want to miss this conversation. Next. You certainly had the uh, eventful four years uh, here as this attorney in St. Louis. Uh, how would you describe it? I describe it as day one when you're trying to reform a system that is beyond broken. It needs to be dismantled and rebuilt. It's the status quo tacticians trying to prevent you from doing what you're supposed to do. You, you came in with a very clear uh, reform agenda. Uh, what was the basis of that? Was it you coming in was on in, in the aftermath of the protests in Ferguson uh, and other places uh, in this area. I mean, it was post Mike Brown. I mean, I ran on a platform to reform a system that we all know needs to be reformed. I ran on a platform for justice for all, you know, um, to do the job as a prosecutor that we take an oath to pursue justice, not really convictions. And I wanted to bring us in line with the oath of a prosecutor and really affect change. And I think that in my four years, yes, it has been um, trying, but we've made a lot of changes. We've done a lot of good things, but we have a lot of work to do. A, a lot of folks really don't have an understanding of the reality uh, of being uh, a black prosecutor. Uh, one of the things that you had to deal with early on uh, were a whole bunch of people who did not like you being the first African-American Lots of turnover in the office. Uh, the exact same thing has happened uh, with Wesley Bell. Uh, and and, it, and it's, it's interesting because, hmm, I can't quite put my finger on what is the difference. We have all of this turnover. Could it be that both of you are African American? Well, I think it's not just being the first African American, but actually the first female to be in a male dominant uh, environment that when I walk into the room, I'm usually the only female in the room. And as you know from my other sisters in this movement, um, you know, I've been before Wesley Bell. You have Marilyn Mosby. You have Aramis Ayala that now she's not being elected anymore. You have Kim Fox. When we are in these positions, our prosecutorial discretion is challenged like no other. Even our male African-American counterparts are not challenged in the same way. So it's the intersection of sexism and racism that is so um, interesting when we take these roles. Uh, you're right, because uh, we've been covering the, the story in Portsmouth and uh, how they, how folks there, they targeted black elected officials and then tried to get Stephanie Morales moved off of the case uh, and then alleging she was somehow was involved or she wasn't even actually at the event uh, they were alleging. And it's, it's sort of this constant battle just to do your job. I mean, that's, that's the, the key. You know, this position has existed since 1821. And 
I want the same prosecutorial discretion of who you charge, what we charge, when we charge, like everyone else. But as we know, I mean, I had the governor call in the former President Trump to address my uh, prosecutorial discretion. We had Senator Josh Hawley, as well as um, many other senators on the, the federal level asking for my investigation in terms of me doing my job like every other prosecutor does in the state of Missouri. But why am I different? Well, we know why. The, uh, it, it's interesting you talk about that. Uh, and for people who don't quite understand the political dynamics, the racial dynamics uh, in this city, in this county, in this state, you were born and raised here. Um, Explain to folks how different and unique it is. It's sort of like it's St. Louis and it's the rest of Missouri. Yes. Uh, first of all, in the St. Louis region, I'm a county within a county. So St. Louis City, I'm the St. Louis circuit attorney. I'm the only circuit attorney out of all the prosecuting attorneys of the state of Missouri. There's a okay, so, so explain that. It's a, it's a term that has existed before me that because I think we're a county within a county, my title is circuit attorney like the state's attorney in Baltimore, and the other prosecutors are called prosecuting attorneys, so that's why Wesley Bell is a St. Louis County prosecuting attorney. But I am the only circuit attorney, and so that's something that existed before me. I think it's to do with the county within the county and the great secession of St. Louis County from St. Louis City. So that's different. So I prosecute all crime in the city of St. Louis, where Wesley Bell has the county area, and he prosecutes all crime in St. Louis County. But even in that conversation of whether uh, the Great Divide, we call it, um, it's been the racial divide, North City, South City, and, and the economic development you see take place in the city, as well as the concentration of violent crime in our city. So we try more cases than any other jurisdiction. We, are, um, we have more cases, we have more violent cases, and we also have the most uh, aggressive police union um, versus other entities um, in the state of Missouri as around the country, the St. Louis Police Officer Association. So those are the challenges. We have 1,219 um, police officers concentrated just in the city of St. Louis. So I have more um, police officers than Wesley Bell, who has a bigger population, just concentrated wow. in the city of St. Louis. And we have less than 300,000 people. 1,219. I mean, how, how does that stack up uh, cops per capita to the population to other cities in the country? I mean, similarly situated cities, we're... A top, we have we're, we have a lot of police officers concentrated in the city of St. Louis. I think we're kind of like the, the fourth largest if you look at other similarly situated populations. Wow. So and, and so and what you were just laying out and describing, um, and you spoke of those those racial dynamics. Um, that 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 really that really just came to play because the moment you moment you come in, um, you being a prosecutor. Then we have this case of the then governor and folks saying, how dare you actually investigate uh, the sitting governor for his actions? And you came under just vicious assault. Yeah, that's I was doing my job. Like any prosecutor that has an allegation of criminal activity that took place in their jurisdiction, they have the duty to investigate and eventually um charge an individual regardless of their occupation or station of life but uh, as you as you know i took um unprecedented actual criticism i took um backlash like no other but that's the the issue when a african-american female prosecutor like we see like you said stephanie morales marilyn mosby kim fox when we do our jobs then the full force of 
the system, the status quo system, comes after us. And then you have, um, of course, uh, in the state, this would be the political dynamic. Uh, Republicans controlling the state legislature, you serve the state legislature, uh, and then uh, what's happening in this city. Uh, when, when they have literally passed laws specifically to stop you, not impacting the whole state, but it, it is as if the legislature wants to completely govern St. Louis. Yes, because it's this, it's this law and order um, misinformation that we want to inject ourselves in a jurisdiction that if you care about the city of St. Louis, then why don't you care in 2012 when we were the first state after the Trayvon Martin uh, incident to enact stand-your-ground laws on the anniversary of his death? Why would we do that? But we talk about violent crime, but we basically give everyone the opportunity to have access to a gun, even the bad people. And then we give people a self-defense claim who are causing the violence that we talk about. And we like to, to say that somehow we're not doing our job or the police is not doing our job. And I ask people, what about the bad policies? You know, we were the number one in not funding social services when we know poverty is the number one uh, issue with violent crime in, in our city, in our state. But we're the, the first to, uh, to fail to, you know, now recently we passed uh, Medicaid expansion, but we've been against any type of uh, actual help in addressing the issues that they talk about. And we actually now, I don't know if you know this, Roland, you know, we're the state that are, are passing legislation actually to prevent any federal gun regulations. The state is going to say that as a police officer, you can't enforce federal gun laws. In a state that talks about violent crime and we need to lock everybody up and, and we need to be tough on crime. Well, hold on, hold on. I, I thought they were law and order. That's what I'm saying. So, not, so in the case of federal gun laws, now they're telling cops what you can't do. And we'll be and we'll be investigated and charged with a crime if they enforce any federal gun regulations. And we know state law can't trump federal law. But why are we doing this? Because it's about uh, political politics and pandering to uh, a base that we know we are part of leading the insurrection movement within the state of Missouri. We're not addressing that. We have people in, in the state of Missouri and high levels of government who are part of this insurrection. And so why is everybody so quiet? Why is the police union so quiet that supported Trump? They're so quiet. So, so you had a cop who's killed, two others who committed suicide, total five people, people died. Cops had their eyes gouged out, uh, beaten. One cop lost three fingers. Uh, you now have some 30 cops that are actually under investigation, 35 in the Capitol Hill riots. And the police union, police union here in St. Louis uh, is uh, like, a, like a mouse uh, in church. I've never heard them as quiet as they have been. It's, 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 it's eerily quiet. And I'm like, why is that? Why? We were one of the states when our police union endorsed Trump, stood by Trump. And now all of a sudden we're quiet. And there are people, and there's actually legislators from the state of Missouri that went to this uh, insurrection event. But I'm trying, I'm waiting on what's happening, what's going on. You, um, you, you make that point there in terms of uh, with, with police unions. And, and there is, there's massive tension in these cities with black prosecutors, progressive prosecutors. Uh, we see it with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. We, we see it with Mosley. We see it with Morales. We see, I mean, we, we see it. We can go down, go down the line. And, and, and I keep saying one of the most fundamental problems is that 
is that we have elected officials who treat police officers as if they are a protected class. As if the rules don't apply to them. And there and are two sets of rules. As the rest of us, and then the police officers, and there's this whole, you know, protect and serve, but it's really protect and serve them. And, and that's really how so many people target it. And it's not a question of saying uh, folks don't like police officers, but it's called fairness. It's called what's right. That seems to me to be where this massive tension is, as if they want to tell people, let me do our job, but we're going to tell you as a prosecutor how to do your job, and if you do anything against us, oh, we're going to take you out. And that's what they told me before I took office, Roland. I mean, they told me I had a meeting with officials in the police union before I took office, and they sat down and told me, now that you're going to be elected, what are you going to do for us? Else we're not going to do our job. Because remember, see, everybody focused on the governor's case. I had Jason Stockley. That was the first, mm-hmm. first situation I had. And, and basically told me, what are you going to do to assure us that never hold a police accountable? I said, that's not going to happen. Oh, okay. So you, you get elected. Yes. And before you are sworn in, take office, they say they don't want to see any officers held accountable. Yes, and told me what I'm going to do because they're going to assure that I will never be elected again, and they're going to assure that I'm going to have a difficult time um, being the prosecutor of the city of St. Louis. That's a threat. Well, we know about threats, but when it comes to me, it's not a threat. I've, I've been told that people can say that I should be shot and killed and maimed. That's not a threat. I can be. I should be hung by the KKK. That's not a threat. But that's where, when you're talking about fairness and justice, and, and you need to ask most of the prosecutors, you wonder why that most prosecutors can't hold police accountable? We already know the laws are actually um, in the favor of the police officer. We know that. But in terms of actually doing an investigation or fair, how is it that police departments are able to investigate themselves? Where is it in the system that can you commit a crime and your friends investigate the crime for you? What type of investigation do you think you're going to have? And then, by the way, when you have an aggressive police union like we do, when they can come to you and tell you what you're not going to do as an elected prosecutor, like you said, and threaten you in broad daylight, threaten you in, in front of your office, have people come, have nationalists come to your office and, 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 and basically protest you anytime, and then basically control every part of the system. They control the legislator. They control the local government, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Everybody wants to say that. They, they control the board. They control everything. It's power because they have the power to basically control how things are going to happen in every day of their life. And it's not just the officer. It's not just the bargaining unit. Everybody likes to say, well, we're against unions. No, they should be in a lane. And that lane is not controlling everything that they control. And that's why this mayor race is important, because guess what? You got a mayor who will be over the police department, will control what, what that collective bargaining agreement looks like, control how police behave. But as prosecutors, we need help because, see, when you're going against the system, look at me as an example. I had to sue the city for under the KKK Act to impede the, the will of the people, and I'm still being attacked. So why would you affect change when where everybody at? Where, they, everybody sit on the sideline like, she's still standing? But it's not about me. It's about the people. Mm-hmm. It's about the city of St. Louis that I grew up from, I live in, I, I love, and this city can do better, but we got to have people standing up and fighting for what's right, fighting for justice in spite of your position. You described, as you were talking, you were, you were describing just, again, uh, uh, the tentacles. And uh, we saw this in Baltimore. 
we saw it in Chicago, where a simple prosecution. This is not. I mean, this is not like you went out and you charged a hundred or two hundred officers. You charged ten percent of the force. We've seen cases where one officer gets charged. Entire slowdown. We're gonna stop working. The blue flu. They just call off, and then guess what? Now, now the crime is is out of control. And who who do you think they're gonna blame? It's gonna be the African American prosecutor or the prosecutor in that in that area because they say we're gonna show you what we're gonna do, and it's it's wrong. And it's it's time for the people to wake up that we pay police officer salaries, we pay them to do a job. When are we going to start holding them accountable? This is not saying that they're not good men and women on the police force. I hate when we have to always characterize police right. that there's good men and women. We know that. But let's understand that everyone, even in the community, there's bad people, just like there's bad people in the police department. And we have to rid those bad people from those critical roles when you can take someone's life or liberty. What's the problem with that? Who, who wouldn't share, who wouldn't support taking those individuals that have the duty as, as a, to protect and serve, to serve the community right? What's so hard about that? Why is all this backlash for that? So, so what you were just describing really takes people on the inside who don't quite understand uh, the depths of this issue. So when people are talking about police reform, accountability, when you hear the phrase defund the police, what, what, what they're talking about is really having a system that truly is about fairness for everyone and not where it's stacked the deck is stacked against anyone who challenges a police officer who dares to prosecute because uh, we also know in, in so many places across the country uh, that when you talk about law enforcement it's DAs are essentially operating on the same side as police officers because the union said it's the only position you will ever take. No, you know what, Roland, that's interesting. You know, I was the first prosecutor in my city when I ran to not have any police union endorsement. You know, we are even divided in the police union. We have the Ethical Society of Police, which is the black uh, organization within the police department, and then we have the Police Union Association. And I never won any endorsement and never thought I was going to win um, any of that endorsement is okay, but I was the first prosecutor to ever not be endorsed by a police union in the history of that office. But that means something. That means, why is that? Because if you look at all the DAs across the country, what, less than 3% are African-American female, um, less than 3% are progressive uh, prosecutors. Most of these prosecutors have been in office for over 20 years, mm -hmm. but most of them are basically, you know, as a prosecutor, when we talk about public safety, and that's our goal is public safety, when you have a police department can, that can tell you, I'm going to stop working because you're not doing what we say, what do you think most of these elected prosecutors who've been there for 20 years, they're going to, to do? They're going to side with law enforcement because we rely on law enforcement in terms of an investigation. But our job is to pursue justice. because Simply because we work with law enforcement does not make us unbiased to do our job because we have an ethical duty to investigate criminal activity regardless of who commits that crime, whether you your status or not, and that's the problem. Supreme Court says equal justice under law. <laughs> that's what it says, equal justice under law. What we see with the insurrection, what is it? It's uh, all these uh, theories of they didn't know they were committing a crime. I'm like, wow, really? You didn't know? Yeah I, yeah, I didn't realize that 
if I'm approaching a building and there are police barricades and there are cops who are standing behind the barricades and then I take the barricade and throw it out the way, I didn't realize I was doing something that was wrong. Somebody made me do it. Do you that, 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 hell, forget a barricade. If I see a damn yellow tape, police do not cross this line, I, I can go, mm, I might not want to go ahead and remove that tape. But even more disturbing is Missouri was the one that led the way to actually file let file litigation with other states through the attorney general to support this lie. And we're we're gonna say it's okay to just lie like this. The attorney general in our state filed litigation against China. We know that's you can't even do that, but their license is never challenged. But my license is always under investigation. I'm always um, in court to do my job. Why is that? It was interesting as you, as you talked about, um, as we were talking about, you know, equal justice under law and, 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 and what has happened. Um, you know, this city, I won't say it's not different from a lot of other places, um, but when you look at the constant uh, stories dealing with um, uh, the use of racial epithets coming from police officers, uh, the recent settlement of a black cop undercover, uh, viciously beaten, and the city had to settle. I say this all the time. It's quite interesting. I never hear from fiscal conservatives who complain about multi-million dollar settlements that cities have to enter into from police abuse. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, I, 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 I would think that you would be offended if the city had to cough up $5 million for a case, when what they should be saying is, y'all just cost us five million. That's five million that we can't spend on roads. That's five million that can't go to police pay raises. That's five million that can't go to body cameras. That's five million that can't go to parks or whatever. And they're sort of just accepting. Well, all right, that's that's just the cost of doing business, and we're just not going to say anything. And and, and 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 I see this all around the country. These multi. I mean, you're talking about upwards of a billion dollars in settlements and folks go eh, it's all right. I, I remember that i remember that was, a, that was a town in michigan it was a town in michigan where they planted they, they beat this brother planted the drugs all caught on dash cam they had to raise the taxes in the township to pay the settlement <laughs> and folks are kind of like oh well, okay about that. A lot of these, Roland, we don't even know because as part of these settlements, they actually have these secrecy clauses that you, you can't put this to the public. So a lot of times, you know, unless it's reported in the media, we won't even know. It's taxpayer money. But, but, but that's where the courts and, and some of these settlements are, that we are going to close and seal the case from the public and actually knowing the amount. And that's why this should be mandatory. It should, like you said, everyone should know the taxpayer dollars that have been utilized. And I believe that in some issues, that that that, though, that money should be taken from um, some law enforcement fund because in our in our city of St. Louis, I'm gonna give you a thing. You know what my budget is? About eight million. So five million dollars settlement. Wow. Don't you think that would have helped the prosecutor's office bring more resources? But we can't do that. Wait a minute, hold on. So the same people who say you aren't prosecuting enough cases, your budget is eight million, but y'all's actions against a cop cost the city five million. 
And you know what their budget is? Over 358 million. So what's the inverse relationship? My budget eight million. There's 358 million of the city budget. But you know. <laughs> See, the thing that look, I've covered city hall, I've covered county government, um, in, in, in multiple cities, and. What I keep saying to folks is that you can exert the pressure from the outside, but you cannot change anything unless you have inside players. And and what you're describing, and when I talk to Marilyn Mosby, when I talk to uh, mayors who try to change things, uh, is that the level of pressure that's brought to bear on you is designed to break you. It's designed to force you out of office, to force you to quit. During the last four years, did you ever say, I don't need this. I, I could take me a nice job as an attorney. I, I, I don't need this stress. I don't need all of this drama. Has it ever crossed your mind to walk away? No, because I know what but for the people electing me, if I wasn't here, what would be happening? Because when you have to fight within the system, you didn't take this job for money because we don't make a lot of money as public servants. You didn't take this job to be uh, popular because the prosecutor is not going to be popular. Anybody who loves the prosecutor, I'm going to look at you and say, what, what you doing? You're not doing nothing. <laughs> so I was going to put that out there. And, and second of all, I believe in this movement of reforming the system because we've all been affected. I've lived in Northfield. I've seen my friends and family members brush with the criminal justice system and lost to the system simply because they're at the wrong place at the wrong time. And actually, the, the, the concentration of violent crime deters you into a direction that you, you could have probably got out of, but it's, it's you go this way. And I see that many people are lost to the system, and it's just not fair. And it's many people who look like me. And so for us to not to say we want change and to complain about it but never tap in and be about it, I tell people, everybody talks about they want to be in this movement, but a lot of people can't take this movement because they don't have the stomach. They don't really want to know what I know because if they knew what I know, they'll say, how can we, we, we fight this? But I think about Dr. Martin Luther King. I think about Harriet Tubman. I think about all the people who led the way for me to even be in this position. So if I give up, if I say it's too hard, it's too tough, and what, what are we going to say for moving forward? Because this is a, this is a civil rights movement. This is not just a, a criminal issue, people affected by the criminal justice system. We have all been affected by the criminal justice system. And until we get it right and do what's right for everyone inside the community, because public safety is, should be number one, then if we don't have people like myself who are willing to stand in and face of all the scrutiny, if you're not willing to lose everything for what's right, then why are you here? Do not be in these positions. And that's what I feel. Because I didn't sign up to be popular. I didn't sign up to, to, to actually have everybody like me. I signed up to do what the people elected me to do. And they're afraid that I'm doing it because I'm not going to back down because I know it's wrong. Look at the, we got a lawsuit right now going to the St. Louis County about the black police, who should have been a black police chief, that he has a lawsuit. If you look at that lawsuit, you'll see how ingrained St. Louis City and County is. But you see that people who really control the, the, the city and county, it's not the people that you elected. It's actually the business leaders that have these uh, these, these, these uh, fake uh, you know, reports that they want to put out about what changes the police department needs. They have these fake kind of groups that they, they get together. They don't invite me or Wesley Bell to the table because, of course, the prosecutor in public safety, we don't have a voice. 
even though we're the top law enforcement officials in these jurisdictions. So they have these reports for a reason because it's people who benefit off of pain and suffering of poverty and keeping things the way they are. If you can benefit off of this, it's people right now that own the, the contracts for the commissary and the prisons, but we don't want to talk about that. They control everything from the police department fund. They control the crime stopper. They control everything, but no one wants to talk about that. That's a, you'll be blacklisted, but I don't care. I'm going to do what's right and fair, and if they ruin me in the process of doing what's right and fair, it's not about me. It's about people who live in a city like me, love the city, who want better. See, that's what I, I often um, explain to folks. When, when people say criminal justice reform, they talk about, some will say mass incarceration. I counter with, yo, mass incarceration is a small piece of it. When, 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 when you talk about true criminal justice reform, you're talking about everything. You're, you absolutely are talking about who are the companies that are profiting off of these high phone calls in jails. Who are the, absolutely, we start talking about all, all the contracts. First of all, I tell you all the time, in America, follow the money. Yeah, I, don't, I, I, I remember, and I use this in my speeches all the time. You, it's probably 15 plus years ago. It's even longer than that. I was at D.C. for something. Uh, and uh, late, I couldn't sleep, so I said, well, let me just take, go take a walk. And uh, so I'm walking, and I'm, 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 I'm go by the White House, and I'm standing in front of the White House. And so uh, I look to the left, and there's a statue, and I see this building. And I go, what's that? I mean, I just, just so then I, I walk down, and I see that's the Treasury building. And literally, it just hits me. I hit. I go. It's like a joke. I look to the right. It's the White House. Look to the left. Money. Treasury Department. Look to the right. I said, "There's no better example right here of America. White House power. Treasury Department is money. The only federal agency that shares along with the White House. The only one that's within the White House perimeter. You can walk outside of that east east." walk outside of the uh, side of the Treasury Department and probably take a hundred steps with you in the East Wing. And I tell people all the time, that is the perfect example of America. Power with money, they are always the two things that are associated. And so when we're talking about this whole deal, the criminal justice reform, I think it has to be even broader to understand when people say we're fighting the system. Because if you only narrow it down to police unions or the police department or DAs uh, or the, uh, the, the local city, the county, uh, and state jails and prisons, it's a whole lot you're missing because you just said it. There are people who profit off of pain and the impossible. I mean, look at the report. You have people who want to do a report, but their whole industry is in health care, you know, for example. I'm not going to say the name. Just look at the, this last 10-year report. Did you see hear some of the candidates talk about this report that never had the prosecutors at the table? And I'm not dismissing the report. I'm just giving you the facts. But look at who, who commissioned this report. And I'm trying to figure out how are uh, corporations involved in uh, safety and crime? I mean, you could be a instrumental partner to have a conversation, but how are you leading and spending money and, and, and having people to actually 
investigate certain things that the, that the police and the community need for, to feel safe, and you're not even in the city. I mean, I'm just kind of like, how can you speak to people you've never even walked out and had a conversation with? And we need these reports to start really talking to the people of the city or St. Louis County, and we need to ask, what makes you feel safe? Because it's the same reports that we did for Ferguson, and this is not against the Ferguson report, the same reports that we did before. Like you said, it's, it looks good on paper. But what has been implemented post-Ferguson that we can actually say is, is made a difference in the lives and the safety and well-being of the people of the city of St. Louis? I'm not saying it hasn't been, but we got to do better than just a report. we got to understand what's behind these reports. And actually the people, like you said, the prison industrial complex of profiting off of probation and parole, they'll have you in your home now incarcerated in your home. It's money behind that, like you said, because there's fees associated with having you at home, not in jail. It's money for the health care and, and, and the health care, co- you know, cost of, of providing care to people who are confined. And you know people are going to be confined. We don't have private prisons, but we have contracts that private businesses bid on every year with new governors. So you got to think about that. It's, fun, it's funny as you're talking. Uh, I, I live and work in uh, Dallas. And, uh, a friend of mine, Matthew Hart, was the chief financial officer for the Dallas Independent School District. So he gets this phone call one day from a business leader who wanted to meet with him. So Matthew was sort of goes to meet with the guy, and he walks into this guy's office, and on his wall, on his wall, was the entire Dallas Independent School District budget. Matthew walks in and and sits down, and he's sort of looking like, why in the hell is my budget? Budget that I put together on this wall. And this guy starts to compliment him on how it was put together, things that were dealt with. And he begins to talk about his, the, the district's resources, things like those lines. But Matthew is sitting there and he says, and, and it hits him, it, it, he says, this right here, this. That a business leader would have the audacity to literally call him to want to go over the district's budget. This guy had deconstructed the entire budget and wanted to have a conversation. And that's, because I, 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 I keep, what I've really been telling folks a lot is I say, look, I said, they really don't have a problem with us talking about mass incarceration. We, we, we got to free folks from prison. We got to get rid cash bond. We got so all of this. I said, y'all, they really ain't got a problem with that. I said, I don't think they they don't have a problem with us. We we start talking about. Uh, in a very narrow way, criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. But the reason I dare say that defund the police pissed them off and freaked them out, I said because any time you target the money 
That's the ball game. Greta Scott King said, they killed my margin. Then we started focusing on the margin. And that, so, so what I have been saying is that when we say racial justice, criminal justice, we better use economic social justice. Because if you don't put the money in there, they'll be happy. Yeah, y'all, y'all go over there, y'all protest, y'all do. But once you start dealing with the money, that is when the game changes in America. Because you know, like you said, it's money when people are put in jail. It's money for people who are housed in jail. It's money for supplies in jail. It's money for all these different things. And it's, and like you said, but it's money when they get released. It's money with, look, it's money when you get your case disposed of. It's money when you go to court. It's money in terms of, and now, it's, you know, and I'm not, this is not to, to, to offend anybody, but we have people who want to monetize criminal justice reform, and that's where you have to be careful with that. And like I said, it's economic, it's, it's reform, but we have to make sure it's fair, and we have to be fair for everyone who enters or engages with the system so, in so, a way. So, for instance, when, um, when people talk about, uh, and I think they pulled my pants leg up. And people talk about, oh, but well, well, yeah, sure. What we'll do is we'll let's stop putting people in prison. And all of a sudden, we're going to put a monitor on them. But then they're making the person pay for that monitor. All of a sudden, when you start adding those fees up, hell, that person's like, well, just put me in the jail. <laughs> I'm not going to pay all of that. I forgot, I forgot the story that I read. Of a guy, and it was some, it was some small infraction. I think he was accused of theft, sixty some odd dollars, whatever. He was paying like a thousand dollars in fees and upkeep for for allegedly sixty seventy dollars. And again, in a person's mind, oh no no no, but but he's not in jail. She's not in jail, but you said it. That's that's eco- that's economic jail. If I got now fork over and my case hasn't even been disposed of, but I'm paying all the money on that device that's on my ankle. That if I'm found not guilty, I don't get back. He's thinking that stuff through. That's why we need, you know, people that think like you said, like you into this fight with us because it's it's many many justices that we have to contend with because the criminal justice system is where economic inequities intersect health care inequities intersect actually um, every broken system educational system it all intersects in the criminal justice system so that's why everybody puts it under criminal justice reform because it all intersects there it's the emergency room for the community because right there when they get to us you're in 911 and now we only have certain options, and that's why reform-minded prosecutors, I call them innovative-minded prosecutors, are crucial because that's a way that we can triage people into services that are not going to, one, put individuals in the poorhouse because they're trying to get themselves back on track or create programs that address by sliding scale fees or limited fees in terms of helping people get back on track. And that's why these programs are so important, and that's why they're different from court-run programs. These are prosecutor-led and we know they can be successful, but we got to have people investing in these programs because we want to expand them because that's us doing things that most people say prosecutors should not be doing. Do you agree that this is a 
what people don't understand is they think the judge, they think that you know, part of the whole deal. But really, that, that's 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 on the head. Well, really, prison is on the head. You got prison, judge and jury. You got prosecutors, which frankly, if it doesn't go past here, because it's just as so when these things come to you, you actually see how all these pieces come together. So when you hear the phrase defund the police, what do you think that means when people say that? I think it's right-sized, the, the funding of police to address the root causes of why we need social service to help police better police in the community because there's a lot of police that can't respond to mental health calls. You know, they can't respond to certain issues in the way that they should and they, we need some social workers and other healthcare professionals that can be embedded in the community that, uh, that can actually accentuate the police department. So because so, you're sitting here, case comes in and you're sitting here looking at this case and you probably, you, you probably going why is this here? person needs some help. Or he's poor, or he or she's poor or addicted, so let's get them to treatment. Right. And think about, and most people never talk about this, because it happens related to Michael Brown. Every time I see one, I think about Kadima Powell. I mean, I remember playing that on my show. And I timed it. It was literally pulled up. It was 16 seconds from when the car door opened to the first bullet that was shot. And I and I and I, I, I use this all the time and I explain to people. I said, how do you go from pull, go from pulling up and in 16 seconds and, and I, I kept playing the video back and it was a butter knife or whatever in his hand. And I said, you roll up on a scene and a guy is shouting, motherfucker killed me. Okay, right there. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a cop. But if I encounter somebody yelling that, my first reaction is, this person is not well. No one yells to two police officers with guns, motherfucker killed me. That, that's just not what. To me, the brain goes, I'm not dealing with somebody who's well. And I'm watching it, and I'm watching the action. And again, for me, I got a police car. If somebody's moving towards me, you know what? I might say, I'm going to circle this way behind the car. As opposed to, gun out, boom, shot dead. That was a perfect example. Happen and that, 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 that,
pushes me all the time because that's just a, a perfect example of what we're talking about, how you have to look at your pool of money and say, and, and then compare to the crimes that are being committed and the actions and then say, how can we better serve the community? And I think that's, that's what, and I mean, no one is saying that police do not need to be funded because we all call for more police. Even in our community, they have more police than most major cities, similarly situated. We call for more police, and that's the problem. We have to start having the right conversation because the police are front-facing individuals that respond to every type of call, and we need to, one, better tool them with the knowledge of how to deal with uh, mental health crises that are even escalating now with COVID and the pandemic. We have to deal with a lot of hope hopelessness that we need people who have that expertise to accentuate those calls, and we can do that, but that takes taking some of those resources and embedding those individuals inside the police department and even inside the community because, as I said, we're lack of resources for community-based resources to triage individuals like this, and that's, that's why it's so important for a prosecutor like myself, who is a registered nurse, to build this infrastructure within her office because it's critical. We need to, we need to, it's a 911, so we have to get people treatment right away. We can't wait six months for a bed. We need to get that person who is having a mental health crisis inside a facility to get them stabilized so they can, one, get them back on track and, and basically give them the help they need. But right now, everybody's stressed in and everybody's all over the place. And until we start having a vision of what we want for public safety, public safety is actually being a part of the community, not being afraid of the community, having appropriately trained police officers as well as community providers that we got to work together with that, regardless of our resources to address the things that you're talking about. Because at the end of the day, even a police officer who shoots and kills someone, they are actually messed up too. They don't, people don't want to admit it. Their lives are forever changed just like their family. And let's bring back the, the human side of policing, being in the community that is a lot of police officers who are from the community who want to be out in the community. But we have to stop this barrier of law enforcement and how we engage the community. And we have to stop that police officers should live in the community in which they police. Because we have bills that say that they don't want to live in the area. I mean, why would you not want to live in an area that you police? That makes you better sensitive to that people are going to be in the area that you live in. And so we have to start addressing this from having real tough conversations of racial bias um, and equities that have existed for decades in this in this city. We have to address um, the crime problem in terms of how um, in our state, African Americans are stopped more than any group. You know, they're three times more likely to be stopped than any other group around the state of Missouri. But we don't want to address that. We have a report every year about an AG. Nobody addresses the racial disparities in stops and how this erodes trust in the community and how it makes it difficult for me as a prosecutor when I have a, a violent individual that we need to hold accountable. Who do you think is going to come forward when they don't trust the people? They're more scared of calling the police that they're going to get locked up on a warrant than actually holding a violent individual accountable. So that's where that breakdown of trust affects all of us, even my office. Because, I mean, it can be, listen, this is a whole lot. It's a whole lot when you're trying to report. It's a whole lot when every action you take uh, gets scrutinized. How dare you do this here? Oh, well, how dare you release protesters? How dare you? I mean, and so 
how do you make sure that, uh, that as you say, mentally sane in the midst of all this crazy? That's a good question. I mean, like I said, I have a group of support, my sisters who, who go through the same scrutiny, Marilyn Mosby, you know, Ken Fox. You know, we support each other by not only, you know, we don't talk about our issues. We actually support each other because usually the only person that knows what we're going through is people in our same position. And, and we support each other. We lift each other up. We say, how you doing today? Everything is going to be all right. You know, Marilyn just won something recently where, you know, they found that her travel was was justified. You know, it's, it's, and Kim Fox is constantly under scrutiny. So we kind of lift each other up and we have a group uh, of, of, of female um, prosecutors like ourselves that we call and just check up on each other and, and kind of support each other and say ha- happy day, you know, hello, you know, you're, you're, you're beautiful because a lot of people dehumanize us in ways where, you know, I've been called a man, I'm everything under the sun, I have my face plastered on, on the Grinch to sell Christmas, I'm everything, I'm every C, N, D, uh, any any derogatory name, but it's but what keeps us going is we're grounded in the work. We're grounded in justice. It's not about us. I know I'm just representing the people, and I know we're attacking the people. So when you come from my people in the community that put me here, keep fighting because that's why I'm here. You're not backing down because guess what? What's the alternative? How it's been? What's the alternative? Going with not progressing and being the community that I know we can be. What's 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 the alternative? The alternative is. Injustice anywhere is, is we have to attack it everywhere. And if you're going to sit on the sideline and criticize, then how, why are you in this position anyway? Why? Why? And I, I'm not just attacked by white people. It's black people, too, because they're the biggest impediments. They're the busy, you know, wanting you to fail. And it's everyone who the status quo blessed in this community to say, stay in your lane. We'll bless you with that position. We'll bless you with that job. We'll bless you with giving you funding for your organization. So it's a lot of people that are entrenched in this system of, being paged and shut up, but that's not what we signed up for. We signed up to do the right thing. We're going to be scrutinized. We don't, we don't make every decision right, but those women who stand by me and came down here to stand with me, they stood with me when no one else was standing with me because it was people in, even in this city were scared to stand with me, but those women came out their comfort zones and are attacked from standing with me outside the courthouse to hands off camera, so I appreciate them, and so that's how we keep each other going because they know what I'm going through and we love each other, and in spite of all the attacks on them, we know that we're doing the right thing. We're on the right side of history. Shay, we don't do anything right. Um, you were admonished for this campaign to not uh, essentially take a ticket in the prosecution before your office began to get involved in other things. Was that a mistake? Do, do you, when you think back, what are some things that you said, you know what, knowing what I know now, I would have done that differently? Well, I think that we have to understand as elected official, when you have people who also attack you in your position as a, a candidate, then you should be able to respond. It's called political speech. And we're fighting the, that, that case is currently fighting on appeal, so I can't get into it. But I disagree with that um, campaign um, issue was enough to warrant me being, my whole office being disqualified off the uh, case because I'm still trying to figure out how is the attorney general who actually told everyone that what he was going to do, how is he intervening in a case that he has no jurisdiction? How is the governor of our state running for the same type of office as I'm running, I'm the prosecutor, at the same time able to attack me politically on an issue that I'm investigating 
and tell tell people that my uh, discretion should be basically taken away and the attorney general should have my discretion. So we got to look at the, the what, I, what was said, but it's called, it's called political speech. And so now I'm going to be silenced from doing my job as not only the prosecutor, which is separate, but as an elected official. So hold me to the same standard you hold all these other people. Because I didn't come for them. They came for me. But I'm going to be able to respond, and no one's going to silence me for doing my job the right way. Is there one thing that you would have done differently last week? Push harder. Fight harder. You know, um, one thing is to continue to advocate for the middle-aged hairdresser that uh, was in a basement with someone who happened to become the governor of the, the, the state of Missouri. And, and making sure her voice was heard better in, in terms of that case. Um, fighting and continue to fight for what's wrong and actually continue to do more because I want to push more. I mean, I'm not saying I made all the right decisions, but what I did not do is I inherited a perfect system. And so what no one's going to do is say that I, everything was roses when I got the office and all of a sudden now the office is, is actually in a worse position. No, actually the office is in a better position and actually we're building relationships with law enforcement. We're building relationships with the community. We're creating job, uh, actual alternatives for people and actually reforming the system that people told me that, why would you do this? You can't do this as a prosecutor. So we're seeing the change, but we are we're, we're changing 200-plus years of mass incarceration that is not going to happen overnight. So, of course, it's things I could do differently, but what I'm not going to say is my decisions to hold Everyone accountable who violates the laws in the city of St. Louis and the state of Missouri, whether they be a governor or not, I would do it again, and I would not change that decision. So right across the street, uh, from where you run the studio, um, what is that HBCU initiative doing? It's critical. I mean, when I was a, a student there, I was a single mother that I had no opportunity here to go anywhere else. And, but for Harris Stowe, an open university, gave me the opportunity to enroll myself into this. It was a college at the time, not a university, at a, as a college, and gave me the opportunity to, to gain my undergraduate degree that led to me going to law school and becoming the circuit attorney of the city of St. Louis. So, but for that university across the street, I would not be here. And, they, and that university is so important that if you hear the history of it, when I was a legislator, they couldn't even offer graduate programs. They were a college, but couldn't offer, couldn't act as a, as a, as a college or a university. And so it was kind of like, what is this? They're the most underfunded university if you look at the state budget, but they're to the same level as other universities that are able to cherry pick students. They're open university, and we need that because we have a lot of educational disparities in our city and our region for our young people. So that university is so critical that as a legislator, I stood up and worked with Senator Jamila Nasheed to make sure they can be treated as a university and actually offer graduate programs. We did that as being me being an alumnus because that university did more for me than all these other degrees. I always talk about Harris Stowe because Harris Stowe lifted me up, gave me the opportunity to become the next, the first circuit attorney ever, black circuit attorney in the city of St. Louis. But no one else would give me an opportunity. If you were not doing what you're currently doing, I could be mistaken. Is there a particular dream job that you say, you know, if I wasn't in this and I wasn't involved in this, I would love to be doing this? 
What would that be? I've always wanted to be a, a doctor. You know, I love healthcare. I love because healthcare disparities and bias within the healthcare system is real. And so that's why, you know, most most people think I was a registered nurse first and then became a lawyer. No, I actually was a was a lawyer, was a prosecutor, left the prosecutor's office to go back in private practice and went to nursing school because this all fits together. And so I would love to address racial disparities in the healthcare system that we see displaying with the COVID pandemic and COVID vaccinations and education because that is so real. And and that's my passion is to help the people. I mean, I, I probably, the dream job is really in the community and really helping to protect the community from the ills of these systems that I've seen on the front line of being a prosecutor, as well as on the, in, in those hospitals that people talk about where, you know, because of your skin color, certain standards of care are delivered to you because it's not just skin color, it's actually your gender. And we know that. And the, and the, AMA knows that and has apologized for their racial disparities, but how do we address that? Last question. The person who some call a, uh, a uh, favorite son of this state, Bruce Lee Dyer, uh, spoke on the right, Lord, oh my God, woman. Others remember the racist, sexist, Well, somebody who was on my social media, this is not right. And I said, first of all, the the living are the ones who judge the life of the dead. A lot of folks don't necessarily think about legacy and generational. They don't think about not just when you pass on, but even when you just move on from your job. When you leave this job, 50, 100, 150 years from now, some student in this state, in this city is reading up and is like, what the hell was going on? This is 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, or however long you stayed in the job. Um, what do you want them to think about I was fair, that I did my job the right way in terms of being unbiased, and I pursued justice for everyone inside the city of St. Louis, but I didn't back down to the status quo tacticians who tried to impede progress in this city, and I will not back down, and so I hopefully I inspire a young person that wants to take this mantle and to, to push reform even further, but they need to understand that this is, this is, we're in a civil rights movement right now in this space, and we need civil rights leaders um, that we know these young people are in terms of you see George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the, the change that they've been acting on the streets. I need some of these fighters inside these offices, like you said, inside to come and work with me so I can pave the way for them and hand the baton off because, you know, I'm, I like to think I'm young, but I'm not. And so I'm not going to last here forever, but I need, we need another Kim Gardner's. We need other Aramis Ayala's. We need other Stephanie Morales and Marilyn Mosley. We need others that in spite of all the criticism and, and the hardship you see us going through, somebody wants to tap in because that's how we got to where we are right now. Well, uh, one of the things that uh, I've always done, uh, someone who covers city government on the front line, is also understand the importance of a narrative to tell your story. Uh, in this city, you're constantly being uh, uh, aligned by uh, the folks 
a black friend. Uh, I've always made clear that you got to be able to have the opposite sex narrative. And so uh, all the folks you've mentioned, uh, have all, have had all of them on, uh, covered all of these things. Uh, and it's always been, it, 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 to me, it's, it's important that uh, folks like yourself know that we're not out here in the wilderness. Uh, and for, us, for those of us in media don't understand uh, what you're dealing with, that's why I think uh, it's important uh, to allow um, you and others to be able to have an opportunity uh, to share their thoughts. And I just want to say thank you because you've been one of the rare ones that call us on, you know, asking the tough questions. You're not just soft, softening the interview for us and you're giving us our side of the story as well as asking us the tough questions that we can.